0: Turn with me to Psalm 67. Starting in verse 1, the psalmist writes, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that the ends of the earth may fear him. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that on this Wednesday night, you would help us to slow our minds, to slow our hearts, to as it were, stop from all that has gone on today and not think about what will go on after this meeting or tomorrow. God help us to focus all the energies of our being, all of our faculties upon You and Your Word. We ask that tonight You would give us a desire, a true hunger and thirsting for You. We ask that as beloved children we would come expecting from our Father, but at the same time we ask that You would give us a beggar's desperation to not come as those who are contented and think they need little. Father, even though we do belong to you, we are those who are needy. We are poor. So Father, help us. Give each person here a sense of their great need of you. Give each person here a sense of their great need of your salvation, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. And Father, we ask that you you would draw near. Father, that is what we want. We do want to learn more about you. We would love it if you would give us a greater intellectual knowledge about yourself. You are not boring. You are not uninteresting. You are the most fascinating, the most wonderful. But Father, if we only have an intellectual understanding, it will profit us nothing in the end. Father, we need a first-hand experiential knowledge of you The way a parent has knowledge of a child and a child of a parent. The way that a husband has knowledge of a wife and a wife of the husband. Oh God, look upon us. And as the psalm says, be gracious to us and bless us and make your face to shine upon us tonight. We ask it all in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, tonight we'll be looking at Psalm 67. And Psalm 67, uh, just by way of introduction, is a psalm of harvest. This psalm was uh, written to be sung during one of the yearly celebrations of Israel, specifically during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was also known as the Feast of Ingathering. It was to be sung, Psalm 67. After the crops of the land had been gathered, verse 6 tells us that the earth has yielded its increase. So there's right out of the gate the the picture of harvest and all of the fruit of uh, the labor and care of the farmer is being put on display and God is being thanked for it. But it's after the gathering of the crops that the people would sing Psalm 67. They would worship God because of his continued kindness to them. The gathering of the harvest was seen as a demonstration of God's grace. It was seen as a demonstration of God's blessing. And ultimately, as verse 1 tells us, it was a demonstration of his smiling approval of his people. The gathering of the harvest uh, was also, in some sense, if, as I was reading Psalm 67, maybe your mind went to Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Uh, Psalm 67 is seen as an outworking of Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And Let me read those verses to you. We read, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, with these verses in mind from Numbers chapter 6, it's it's with these in mind that the psalmist takes up his pen and writes Psalm 67. We see first in verse 1, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Selah. It's with these verses that the psalmist Forms the foundation of the psalm. It's the launching point of his prayer. All that he will ask for and all that he will call the nations to do are born out of this portion of this verse. And he says, May God, so God, I'm coming to you, you must. But what does he say? And as we read it on the pages of our Bibles, And you heard me read it, and maybe you're reading over it right now, looking at it. You hear words like, be gracious to us and bless us and make your face to shine upon us. I was speaking with someone earlier today about Psalm 67, and we talked about how familiar such words are. I don't think that you get much more common uh, in regard to Bible words than gracious and bless and make your face to shine upon us. But I, I do want to warn us to be weary of familiarity because there is so much to be seen here. So what is the psalmist asking when he says these things? Well, simply put, he's asking God. He's, he's in a sense, desperately coming to God and saying, you must continually give us, your people, what we can't give to ourselves. You must provide what we can't provide For ourselves. Be gracious. Bless. Make your face to shine upon us. Negatively speaking, he's coming to God and saying, you must deliver us from the evil one. You must deliver us from our enemies. You must deliver us from our sin as individuals, as households, and as a nation. You must, God. But Positively speaking, he's coming to God and saying, you must provide salvation for us from beginning to end. It must be all of you because it surely cannot be any of us. He's coming to God and saying, you must give us good and perfect gifts. If they were to count their many blessings and name them one by one, they would find that every blessing that they had was from the hand of God. They'd done nothing to improve themselves, nothing to accommodate themselves. It was all God's good pleasure. But the psalmist is also coming and asking of God, God, we must know your tender nearness. God, we must know your loving acceptance. So, when the psalmist asks God to be gracious, to bless them, to make his face shine upon them. He asks for these wonderful, eternal realities to be present in the individual, in the household, and in the nation. So it's for these things that the psalmist prays first. However, the psalmist prays for these things not so that Israel can hoard God's goodness, Far from it. The psalmist prays for these things so that the nations, so that the people, so that every non Jew walking the face of the planet then could join Israel in the first hand experience of the living and true God. The whole reason. In verses 1 and 2, why the psalmist asks for these things is, yes, so that Israel would be blessed and that they would know God for themselves firsthand. But it's also so that Israel could then turn out and look to the nations, and through their being blessed by God, they could bless the nations as well. We read in verse 2 that this grace and blessing and faith shining upon them is so that your way, that is God's way, may be known on earth, his saving power among all the nations. The psalmist prays for these things so that God's character, God's law, his person, his work may be known on the earth among the nations. The psalmist prays for God's blessing on Israel so that Israel can spread the knowledge of God across this globe. And as I prayed, it wasn't just a mere intellectual knowledge that, God was, uh, that the psalmist was asking God to give to them, though it would begin there and though it would increase this intellectual knowledge. The psalmist is asking for a spirit-wrought experiential knowledge, a knowledge of God that is brought about by the new birth and ongoing communion with God. This is what the psalmist wants for Israel, and this is what the psalmist wants for all the nations. Think about it. The psalmist isn't speaking vaguely. All you nations over there, you peoples over there, indiscriminate, uh, faceless, blob, mass of humanity. No, it's not merely just a few in each nation, but all in each nation. From heads of government to the poorest on the streets and everybody in between, the psalmist desires for all, capital A-L-L, all, to know the way of God on the earth and to know His saving power. He's saying, God, do these things in us, in Israel, in Your people, in order that all people everywhere may know You and be saved. Well, the psalmist pleads with God for all the peoples. We read in verse 3, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This is a prayer of wide scope. It's a prayer of courage. A prayer of boldness. Again, it, enc- it encompasses all people everywhere. And the psalmist asked God to so work in them that without coercion, Not with the sword, not with any brute force of man, but with a willing heart that has been born again from above. That these nations and all of the people in them would pledge allegiance to the living and true God. A side note about praise during this time in the Old Testament. When a person was commanded to praise... It wasn't a light, trite, insignificant thing. It was a a pledging allegiance to this God. It was a turning away, a renouncing of all other gods, of all other deities for this God that you were praising. So for Israel and all the inhabitants of Israel to praise God, they were pledging allegiance to the living and true God. They were turning their backs on Baal and Ashtaroth and Dagon, and Marduk, and all the rest to say all of these are counterfeits, false, dead. But God, Yahweh, the Lord, He is true. He is real. He is the God who moves and lives, and He is the God who brought all things into existence and is currently ruling and reigning everywhere. The psalmist asks God to work in these people, to work in these nations, so that they willingly and gladly turn away from these gods. The psalmist goes a step further in describing, don't let me get ahead of myself, two applications briefly. Verses 1 through 3, we see that grace is received by Israel, blessings are received by Israel. God's face shines upon Israel in order that his way and salvation would be known on the face of the earth in every nation. And believer, it's no different for you. God sought you out in time and space in the gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought you to the end of him, of yourself in order to make you his. But he did not give you grace. He did not give you blessing. He did not make his face to shine upon you only for you to stay huddled up, only for you to to be quiet and to not go or speak or do. No, you were saved as Israel was saved, as you were chosen, as Israel was chosen, in order that in your life, in your family, the family that you Came from, that you grew up with, the family that you then married into, uh, the children that you have, the spouse that you have, uh, the friends that you have, the employer that you have, the employees that you have, uh, those people that you have kind of common acquaintances with. You were given grace, you were chosen by God in order to what? in order to make God's way known, his character, his law, his salvation, in those areas. You may not have the ends of the earth. You may have home. You may have extended family. You may have a job, and that's the extent of it. But that's where God has put you. And that is where God has called you, like he called Israel, to make his way known. In clear, simple, humble, childlike ways, so that the nations, so that those people who are there in front of you, with you, would know him. Well, the second thing that I would say we can glean from verses one through three is that we must labor to pray as the psalmist prayed. Again, the psalmist prayed a big prayer, a bold prayer, a courageous prayer. One commentator said that it was a prayer of daring. He ventured on God in this prayer. God, you're, you alone are big enough to do this, to save in this way, to gather this many people to yourself. As I was thinking about praying big, one person came to mind immediately It was John Knox. Now, we hear a lot about John Knox being this bold, fiery preacher. But to hear the accounts of John Knox, his stature, um, to hear the way that he spoke, he was actually a pretty frail little guy, sickly, but God really captured his heart. God captured his heart in such a way that Knox took God at his word, not just for his own soul, but for his family, for his church, and for his nation. Mary, Queen of Scots, talked about John Knox. She was a fierce opponent of Knox in the Scottish Reformation. But she said this about him, specifically his prayer life. She said, more than the commanders and armies of the nation's, I fear the prayers of John Knox. The prayers of this sickly, frail man, captured by God, following hard after the Lord, was what kept this queen up at night. Because she knew that this Knox, this John Knox, had an ear with the king. But do you also remember John Knox's prayer for Scotland? He prayed this, God, give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland or I die. God, your your people here, my fellow countrymen, they must know you. You must save them. You must provide a thoroughgoing reformation in Scotland. If you don't come, if you don't save, if you don't reform, we are lost. God, you must I think that that same spirit of prayer is what we see in Psalm 67. Psalm 67 says more or less this, God, give the nations to Israel or we die. So, your life is is not your own. God has saved you so that you would show others His way and His salvation and We ought to be those who pray Psalm 67 like prayers and prayers like John Knox. Well, looking at verse 4, we read, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Well, not only are the nations to praise God, to pledge allegiance to Him, but they're to kindle their affections for this God and to joyfully sing to Him. The reason to kindle their affections and the reason for such joyful singing is found in Him. It's found in His reign. We find first, there in verse 4, in the second half, that He judges the peoples with equity. That is, he reigns in perfect fairness. There's no impartiality with God. There's no injustice with God. All of his subjects, all those that he reigns over in the nation of Israel as a whole, every individual, every household, and all those that he reigns over outside of Israel, even on until today in the church. This is how he reigns. Spurgeon said of God as the judge, where the Lord rules, rectitude is supreme. He rights all wrongs and releases all who are oppressed. Justice, that is capital J, justice. Justice as a person, God himself. Justice on the throne is a fit cause for national exaltation. But not only is he a judge, we see also that he is a shepherd. That word there in verse 4 for guide the nations is where we get the Hebrew word for shepherd. So not only is he a judge who reigns with perfect justice, but he is also at the same time the shepherd who reigns with compassion, guiding the weak and the senseless. Again, Spurgeon writes, He will lead them as a shepherd, his flock. And through his grace, they shall willingly follow. Then will there be peace, plenty, and prosperity. It is a great condescension on God's part to become the shepherd of nations and to govern them for their good. However, it is a fearful crime when the people who know the salvation of God apostatize and say to the Lord, depart from us. So again, we can say that the reason why the nations should be glad and sing for joy is because of this judge. It's because of this shepherd who rules over his people and he rules over the nations. It's for this reason that the psalmist exclaims again. The same line in verse 3 is repeated there in verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The great theme of this psalm continues. It's worship of the living and true God. And what we find, it's not some copyist's error. It's not meaningless repetition. I believe that the second mention that we find in verse 3, that's seen in verse 5, is purposeful. The psalmist is full of praise to God. He hardly knows how to contain himself. He hardly knows how to contain his joy. It's like the Apostle Paul. When you find him in one of his letters, he breaks out into song because he just can't help it. We're thinking about how we would apply this. For every person who names the name of Christ If we're going to call the nations to be glad and sing for joy, if we're going to call our spouse or our children, our friends, or anybody else down the list to be glad and sing for joy, we must do it first. I found more often than not that when I'm not doing the very thing that I call people to do, I'm a stench in their nostrils and they don't follow me for one square inch. But for the believer, for the one who belongs to Christ, for the one who has been bought with the, at the price of the precious blood of the Lamb, we must, as the hymn writer says, sing I must for Christ is mine. We must fill our hearts up on Christ. Fill our minds up on the realities of the fact that this judge is our judge. This shepherd is our shepherd. This judge is not just our judge, but he is the judge over all. He rules in this way over all. He's the shepherd. He, he governs and guides over all in this way. Consider his reign in general. Consider his reign over you. Consider his reign over the nations. This was cause to praise for the psalmist. And this is cause to praise for us. The psalmist was full of it, and you can be too. I'm so thankful that men like myself wrote the Bible. And that us like people can convey such realities. We can know that this too can be our experience. Verse 4 isn't too good to be true. It can be our experience. Knowledge of this Christ, intellectually and experientially, is not too good to be true. It can be, and it must be, ours as well. Well, moving on to verse 6. In verse 6 we read, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. The assurance and confidence that the psalmist has in regard to the salvation of the nations is rooted in this verse. If you wanted to say that there's a key verse in Psalm 67, it is Psalm 6, specifically this first half. The psalmist looks out at some point before pinning the psalm and observes a plentiful harvest. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. And they're seeing all of this harvest gathered in. And the psalmist is reminded again of God's continued kindness. But he's also reminded of something else. He's reminded that as plentiful as this harvest is for us from our fields, that there is a day coming soon when the harvest will be plentiful for the nations. And this harvest that he sees before him, it is, in a sense, the confidence, the assurance that God will reap a harvest from the nations one day through Israel. Israel, God's people, have been given the greatest and the most of all the people on the face of the planet. They've been given God himself. They've been given God's law. They've been given God's covenants. And they've been given every imaginable material blessing. They they are the apple of His eye. Of all the people on the face of this planet, they are most blessed. But what were they to do with all this blessing? Well, they were to face outward toward the nations. And they were to call the nations to themselves. They were to describe these realities of God Himself and His law, His covenants, all of these blessings that He had bestowed upon them. And as the blessing of God had been theirs, and it was in that present moment, and it would be continually, they were to call the nations saying, you can know this. Notice that the psalmist prays, God, our God shall bless us. They're calling the nations to join that hour, to join the covenant community, to be in with the people of God and they themselves be the people of God. Well, with the assurance of God's continued blessing and God's work among the nations, the psalmist gives one more petition, verse 7. He writes, God shall bless us and let all the ends of the earth fear him yet another bold prayer, another desire of the heart of the psalmist, that the people, that these nations, would honor and revere God. It was a burning desire for the psalmist. He seemingly, in so many different ways in these seven verses, uh, turns the, the diamond and says it another way, pleads it another way, commands it another way, And he ends with the fear of the Lord. He's calling these people to know the Lord, not in a slavish fear, but in the fear of the Lord, that is, that between a beloved parent and a child. Spurgeon writes of this fear, that the far off shall fear God. The ends of all the earth shall out of fear this loving reverential fear, they shall end all their idolatry, and they shall adore the living God. All tribes, without exception, shall feel a a sacred awe of the God of Israel. Ignorance will be removed, insolence subdued, injustice banished, idolatry abhorred, and the Lord's love, light, life, and liberty shall be over all. That's what the psalmist wants, wanted, and that's what we must want, what we must ask the Lord for to do today as well. Well, a few applications. First, for the psalmist, he has a a sign. He has an assurance, a reminder of God one day One day soon, so he thinks, where he will reap a harvest among the nations. And it's this harvest. He's looking at it. He's seeing the sheaves gathered. And it is this sign that gives him such confidence, such assurance of what is to come. But for us today, for the church, we have a sign greater than harvest. Harvest consider Christ, consider his cross, consider his empty tomb. Do we not have greater signs? Do we not have greater assurances? Do we not have a greater confidence than this psalmist had? He says the earth has yielded its increase. The nations being brought in are as as sure as it gets. If he was that assured and that confident with the harvest, how much more should we be assured and confident in Christ? The greater assurances of the harvest among the nations are before us. And that leads into uh, another application. Because that is true. We must be confident that this will come to pass. I feel like so often in our day, there is something of a a fearful mentality uh, in regard to the church. Um, The thought that one pastor put it, we lose down here. (laughs) That there's very little reason for us to have confidence that the kingdom of God will press forward in this age. But As far as I read it in the New Testament, directly from the Lord Jesus Christ's lips, he'd said in the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And in light of that reality, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. His scepter is stretched out and he's bringing men and women and children into his kingdom. In light of those realities, we are told to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is reason to be confident in the fact that God will reap a harvest among the nations, the nations that are in our household, in our families, that we work with, that we see in Walmart or the ball field or wherever we go? Do you look out in your household and in those various places and do you draw confidence from Christ's words? He's doing something here. He's placed me here for a reason. He's made his way and his salvation known to me. Now I am to go and make it known to those who are immediately in my context All authority has been in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And I am his. And I have his gospel. Third and last, I would say that from us being confident, we would pray for the reign of Christ. Pray for the reign of Christ on this earth to take new ground in all places, everywhere. Again, going back to the big, bold, confident prayers of a John Knox or of the psalmist here in Psalm 67. Have you prayed concerning the reign of Christ? Lord Jesus, give me my spouse or I die. Give me my children or I die. Give me my parents or I die. Give me members of my extended family or I die. Give me my employer or I die. Give me my employee or I die. We of all the people on the face of the planet have just cause to pray in that way and to pray expectantly because He delights to hear those prayers because He put them in us. And He delights to use us as a means to answer those prayers So he must be busy. But he delights to do those things because it's who he is. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the King. Well, may each of us look at Psalm 67 differently. May we pray this psalm as, I believe, it was meant to be prayed with great boldness and courage and confidence, knowing that God, our God, has worked in such a way that it will come to pass. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we ask that we would be Of people before you, a people walking boldly, a people walking confidently, a people walking assured of all that you have revealed yourself to be, a people who are assured of all that you have promised to us. Father, we ask that we would be those who are found faithful, praying such prayers working in such ways. Father, you know that we are children of weakness, so we watch and pray. And we say, Father, that by your grace, we will find in you our all in all for everything in this psalm, for everything mentioned as far as application goes. Oh God, you are our all in all. Demonstrate yourself to be so. We ask in your mighty saving name. Amen. Amen. Good night.